You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you today. Good morning. Uh, It is a joy to be with you today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Reed, and I'm one of the pastors here at The Brook, and I'm excited to have the opportunity uh, to share God's Word with you uh, this morning. As we begin our time together, I want to ask a simple question. How important is it for our words and our actions to be consistent with one another? So we have a bunch of kids in the room today since today is family worship. Let me ask this as an example. Parents, let's just say that we decide that we need something to entice our kids to work a little harder on their grades. And so what we do is we tell them, hey kids, for every A that you earn, we are going to give you $20. So on that next report card, that's right, kids will be excited about that. So no money for B's, no money for C's, definitely no money for D's or F's, but $20 for every A. So our kids hear this, and they work really, really hard, they study hard, they turn in their projects on time, they spend extra time uh, getting all the footnotes right in their papers, they do everything they have to do, and they do it. They get their straight A's, and they are excited, so they bring their report card to us, they got a smile on their face because they're proud of their accomplishment, and they hand that report card to us, fully expecting to be rewarded for their hard work. And what if we take that report card from them and we say, hey, good job, give them a pat on the back, and we walk away. What if there's no money exchanged at that point? Do you think our kids would try as hard next time to earn those same grades? Probably not. Because our actions and our words were not lined up. They were not consistent with one another. We told them we would pay them. They did their part, and then we did not pay. Adults, it's the exact same thing for you. If you go into your workplace and your boss tries to entice you to get that big sale or to finish that project ahead of schedule, and they say, hey, look, we're going to give you an extra week of vacation, or we're going to give you a pay raise, or whatever it may be. And so you do your part, but then your boss does not follow through on their part. Chances are, the next time that they try to entice you like this, uh, you're going to probably be hesitant to believe them. You're going to probably remember the time that their actions and their words did not line up with one another. For all of our sports fans in the room, let me use this as our final example. If I claim to be a Georgia fan, but I never cheer for my team, am I really a fan? Probably not, right? Like a real fan going to watch the games, going to buy the merchandise. A real fan is going to know the players, keep up with the stats. A real fan is going to follow their team. A real fan is going to cheer for their team, whether they are winning or losing. Listen, that's how we actually know that Pastor Brian is a Tennessee fan, right? Because Tennessee, (laughs) Tennessee has not been good for like 10 years and he still cheers for them. So uh, he is a real fan. And uh, the best part is he's not even here to defend himself today. I love it. I love it. Um, So listen, we could go on and on with examples like this. Uh, The reality is, uh, deep down, we all know that it is important for our actions and our words to be consistent with one another. We know that it is important for us to follow through on what we say and to be the people that we claim to be. So I think we can all agree that our actions do matter. If we want to be taken seriously, we cannot be people who say one thing and do another. Rather, we have to be people who live lives that are consistent. And so this morning, we're going to see that the same is true when it comes to our faith. We're going to see that our actions matter when it comes to our faith. We're going to see that our faith should not be expressed only 
uh, with our words, but also with our deeds. And we are going to see that a faith without works, according to Scripture, is dead. So if you have your Bibles with you, let me get you to turn over to James chapter 2. Our message today is going to be primarily from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. I'm going to be reading uh, from the ESV this morning. Uh, let me remind you also that you can follow along with today's message on the Version Bible app. If you have that app on your phone, uh, when you open it up, you can go down to the bottom right corner. You can press the More button, Select Events. You'll see the brook listed as a live event. Uh, from there, you'll have all of today's scripture and all the uh, fill-in-the-blanks as well. All right, so today's passage should be a familiar passage for all of us. It's one of the main passages of the New Testament uh, that discusses the relationship between faith and works. Uh, and to help you understand uh, why it is important for us to be familiar with this, uh, with this text, allow me uh, just to share a quick personal story with you. In 2007, my wife and I, uh, we got married. We moved to Louisville, Kentucky uh, so that I could begin my seminary studies. And uh, while we were up there, I needed a part-time job just to help pay the bills. So I ended up getting hired on at Fifth Third Bank as a customer service representative. And uh, it did not take me long uh, to figure out that one of my new co-workers was a Mormon. Now, uh, prior to me meeting this gentleman and getting to know him, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know a lot about Mormons. Uh, all I knew was what I had been taught. We believed as a, you know, kind of growing up that Mormonism um, was a cult. And as I later found out uh, by you know, getting to know my coworker a little bit better, and also by taking a cults class in seminary, they definitely have some unorthodox beliefs. Uh, but one of the main things that they hold to, though, is a works-based salvation. So in other words, they believe that there are certain things that you have to do in order to earn your salvation, and that is obviously not what we believe. So as months went on and me and my coworker became better and better friends with one another, and we started having more meaningful conversations with one another, um, I finally was able to get the conversation to, to kind of navigate towards how is someone saved. I wanted to have the opportunity to share the gospel with my new friend. I wanted to have the opportunity uh, just to show him what God's word had to say about this because I wanted him to know that there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. Rather, we are saved by grace through faith. And when I was finally able to ask him why he believed what he believed regarding salvation, he opened up his New Testament to James chapter 2, and he began reading this passage. So let me go ahead and read it for us right now. What good is it, my brothers, this is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so listen, if we're going to be effective at all when we talk to people like my friend at the bank, and if we're going to be able to defend our faith, against people who do hold to a works-based salvation, then we need to know what to do with passages like this. Um, far too often, there is this inclination to run from passages like this. Like, we don't know what to do, so we immediately run to other statements uh, that maybe Paul made in Ephesians 2 or in his letter to the Romans. But let me encourage you this morning. We do not have to run from this passage. Guys, we can embrace this passage because it is completely consistent with what we believe. And this morning, I want to show you how. 
So let's reread our passage together, and then we're going to jump into our text, and we're going to begin uh, dissecting it. So this, again, is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Uh, the first thing that I want us to affirm this morning, this is in your handout and also in the Version Bible app, a deedless faith is no good. A deedless faith is no good. All right, so the first thing that we see um, in this passage is an illustration of a poor person uh, with physical needs. The text says that they are poorly clothed and they are lacking in daily food. Now, earlier in the letter from James, uh, we actually see two different things that are going to be important for our context uh, this morning. So let me go and share those with us now so that as we dissect our passage today, it'll make a little more sense to us. Uh, But the first one is in James chapter 1. James tells uh, his readers that they need to be doers of the word. So in other words, actions need to follow if you claim to follow Christ. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 22 through 24. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. If anyone who listens to the or anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. And then in James chapter 2 verses 1 through 9, which are some of the verses that immediately precede our passage, Uh, James explains that it's not right to show partiality or favoritism. So in other words, when there's a rich person and a poor person in front of you, you need to be treating them the same. You shouldn't give preferential treatment to one just because they have wealth. Listen to verses 1 through 9. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself... You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So both of these things are important for us as we approach our passage today. Uh, Number one, James expects uh, all of the followers of Christ to be doers of the word. And number two, he expects that they're not going to show favoritism or partiality. But that's not what ends up happening, is it? Let's look again at our illustration that we see in verses 15 through 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So in this illustration, somebody has acknowledged the poor person. They've said some nice words to the poor person. 
but they've offered them nothing that is needed for the body. So basically what they've done is they have offered them empty words. And then James asks a rhetorical question to further drive home his point, and he asks, what good is that? And the right answer is, as we've just affirmed in our first point, that it is no good at all. And I want us to notice something else about this illustration. In verse 15, we see that the poor person is actually not a specific person. Uh, Look at what James says and how he says it. Uh, He says, if a brother or sister. So he's giving an illustration. If a brother or sister. So it's correct to assume that this poor person is just a made-up character for the sake of the illustration. Uh, Other translations, such as the NIV, for example, they will say, suppose a brother or sister. So you can definitely tell from that language that he does not have anyone specific in mind. However, the same is not true when we get to verse 16. When we get to verse 16, uh, 16, James addresses his audience. And he says, and one of you says to them. And guys, this is important. He could have easily continued in this illustration uh, with fictitious characters. He could have easily said, and someone says to them. But that's not what he does. He says, and one of you says to them. He singles them out and he has them play the role of the person who is offered empty words. He has them playing the role of the person who has faith but does not have works. James is teaching these brothers that there needs to be works in their daily lives that show their faith to be true. Otherwise, their faith is no good. And this takes us to our next point. A deedless faith is a dead faith. Let's look again at verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So as we see in verse 17, there is a link between faith and works. Faith and works, they go together. Otherwise, according to James, our faith is useless. And to use his exact words, he says that it is dead. Uh, And to continue in this point, let's look again at verse 14. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? All right, so there's two rhetorical questions right here. We've already answered the first one. The first question was, what good is it? And from the way that question is formed and from its placement in the argument, it is correct to answer that question by saying, no good at all. And to be clear, guys, we speak the same way, like when we talk to people, when we're in conversations with some of our friends, we will ask questions in such a way to where we expect them to respond negatively, like we expect them to say no. We'll say stuff like, you wouldn't really do such and such, would you? And we expect them to say, no, of course not. Like, and that's exactly what James is doing right here. He's saying, man, what good is it? In other words, he's expecting them to say, it's no good at all. But the next rhetorical question is where the controversy is. This is why James says that a faith without works is dead. Because the second rhetorical question is, can that faith save him? Now this is the point that my friend at the bank was trying to emphasize. He tried to prove from this verse that works are necessary for salvation. However, this is an incorrect conclusion to make 
from this text because we know from other passages that that's not consistent with what God's word says. For example, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Many of you already have this memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 9, not a result of works. So if works are not necessary for salvation, then what is James talking about? Well, James knows that genuine faith will produce works. James knows that genuine faith uh, will have works as the necessary outcome of our faith. And here is how we know that. It's in the very next verse. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when James asks, can that faith save him? Man, we need to put special emphasis on the word that. What he's saying is, can that faith save him? Can a faith that does not produce works be genuine faith? And the answer is no. Genuine faith will produce works. And a faith that does not produce works is not genuine. It is a dead faith. A famous saying from the reformers was, we are justified by faith alone. But faith that justifies is never alone. Flip with me over to Matthew chapter 7. Jesus explains this in a pretty way that's a pretty easy way to understand. Uh, Verses 15 through 20 of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So when I was a kid... Uh, we used to go out and visit my grandparents in a uh, little town called Elberton, Georgia. I'm going to take a wild guess that no one in this room has heard of that town. Uh, they barely get a dot on the map. I'm pretty sure they are literally a one red light town. And uh, so they live out in the middle of nowhere. We would go out there uh, every now and then to go visit with them. And my grandparents had this really nice cherry tree in their front yard. And if we got there at the right time of the year, and if we got out there before uh, the birds took everything, which was a problem um, with cherry trees, if we got out there before the birds, we had the opportunity uh, to enjoy really some of the best cherries that you could imagine. I mean, these were not, you know, out of a can. These were not, you know, picked up at a store that had been sitting on a truck for weeks. Like, this was fresh off the tree. It doesn't get any better than this. They were fantastic. Now, let me ask you, as a kid, like I'm talking seven, eight, nine years old, How did I know that my grandparents had a cherry tree? Like, did I take some class in school in horticulture? Like, was I doing tests on the branches in the soil, doing some scientific experiment to determine, oh, this must be a cherry tree? No, like, I knew that it was a cherry tree because it had 
cherries on it, right? Like, it's really that simple. And in the same way that a tree is known by its fruit, we too will be known by our fruit. That is what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 7, and that is what James is saying in our passage as well. People will know that we are followers of Jesus because there will be things in our life that show that to be true. So what good is a faith that does not produce works, and what good is a faith that cannot save you? It is no good at all, and it is a dead faith. So I want to tell you about a time uh, when I was in college and I had the opportunity to put faith into action. Uh, so I grew up in Atlanta, and as you all are very well aware, college football uh, rules in the South. And as most of you also know by now, I am a huge uh, Georgia Bulldogs fan. Uh, some of my earliest memories in life uh, include me sitting in front of the TV on Saturdays with my family uh, watching the Bulldogs play. And uh, one of Georgia's most hated rivals is Georgia, Georgia Tech, or Georgia Tech. The Georgia, Georgia Tech um, football game is one of the oldest uh, rivalries in college football, dating all the way back to 1893. Uh, These two schools despise each other so much uh, that the game has earned the nickname Clean Old Fashioned Hate. And so although all games are important to win, it is especially important to beat your in-state rival, as everyone in this state knows all too well. Uh, Not only is it for bragging rights, but it is uh, important to beat your in-state rival for the sake of recruiting. It's uh, very important if you want to be able to build good teams. So on November 26, 2005, I had the opportunity to go and watch this game for free, which is a uh, treat for a game like this. Uh, Georgia was scheduled to play Georgia Tech in Atlanta at Bobby Dodd, at Bobby Dodd Stadium. Uh, it's Georgia Tech's home field. Some of our friends at church had tickets to this game, and they ended up not being able to go, so they offered uh, me and three of my friends their tickets. And so, man, we were excited. So we threw on our red and black shirts. We headed off to the game, and, man, we were, we were pumped. Man, like, these, these seats were fantastic. We got there early, uh, found our spots. There were about maybe 15 rows up, about on the 40-yard line. Just a fantastic spot to watch a game, especially a game like this. However, as time went on, we quickly started to feel unwelcome. As people started filing into the stands, uh, we learned that we had been given tickets to the Georgia Tech alumni section. <laughs> and so... By the time the game started, we were four red shirts in a sea of yellow. Like when they show those blimp shots and there's like, you know, all the fans of the stadium on this one side and all the other fans of the other team on the other side. And then you see there's like just a few random shirts that are clearly on the wrong side of the stadium. That was us that day. Okay, like it was pretty intense. And especially for a rivalry game where these two schools absolutely hate each other. It was intense. Now, normally in a situation like that, I would recognize my surroundings and I would act appropriately. Like I am not a trained UFC fighter, so um, I'm not going to be the guy that starts any trouble under normal circumstances. However, this time uh, was a little different. Uh, One of the guys that came with us was my best friend's younger brother, Trey. And I have to be careful to call him the younger brother and not the little brother, because there is nothing little about Trey. He looks like the Michelin Man. In high school, uh, colleges such as Alabama were trying to recruit Trey 
uh, to be on their football program. Uh, but he actually ended up going into professional weightlifting instead, which ended up being the better option for him. He signed a contract with some big-time sponsors, made a lot of money, and did really well for himself. Um, but just to show you how strong uh, my buddy Trey was, uh, he actually did go to one of Alabama's football training camps that they offered four uh, potential recruits. And one of the exercises that they had uh, all the recruits do that day uh, was they needed to bench press 225 pounds as many times as they could without stopping. So prior to Trey having his turn, the most that anybody had done that day was 12. And that's a lot. Let's just be real. I don't even know how many times I could do it, if at all. Okay? So uh, 12 times. Trey sits down, bench presses 225 pounds, 44 times before he finally ran out of steam. And he told me that he actually did it 45 times, uh, but they didn't count the last one because apparently he didn't lock his elbows on the way up. So uh, here is actually a picture of him on the front cover of the Muscular Development Magazine. I know you can't see that far, so let me just read it. It says, the 21-year-old barely legal freak. So this is the guy who was at the game with us. And I also know um, some of y'all can't see that far, so we've got a picture of him on the screen. This... This is my best friend's younger brother. So he's at the game with us, okay? So this, this is kind of crucial to the story. Since Trey was with us, okay, we knew that we could cheer as loud as we wanted <laughs> without fearing any repercussions. Trey even told us, he said, listen, guys, if anybody says anything to you, you let me know and I'm going to take care of it. And we were like, yes, sir. So, guys, it was awesome. We cheered our faces off at this game. And like with most rivalry games, it came down to the final few minutes of play. One of the best games I've ever been to. Um, Georgia was actually losing the game late in the fourth quarter. And uh, with three minutes and 18 seconds left, they score a touchdown that gives them the lead. And they are able to hold on to the lead all the way until the end. Just a fantastic game. Uh, We were able to be there. And we did not have to sit there and hide and act like we weren't excited. We were thrilled. I can promise you that the Georgia Tech fans that were around us that day, they knew that we were four very excited fans. We had faith that Trey could protect us. <laughs> and our actions showed that faith to be true. I recognize that this is a silly example of faith in works. But guys, on a more serious note, isn't this exactly what James is talking about in our passage? Like, isn't he talking about a faith that produces works? James expects fellow Christians to be people who show their faith through their deeds. He expects them to live it out. And guys, that's what I want to challenge us with this morning. Like as we finish 2018 and as we start this new year together, just imagine with me what could happen in and through our church if we actually lived lives that were consistent with what we say we believe. Just imagine with me what God could do with this many believers, okay? This many believers. If we didn't just claim to follow Jesus, but we actually had actions in our life that showed that to be true. So church, in 2019, let's don't merely claim it. Man, let's live it. 
Let's live out our faith in such a way that everyone that we come across knows that we trust in Jesus. That they know that there is a Savior who has already accomplished everything for them through his life and his death and his resurrection. Amen? Well, guys, this morning, if you don't know Jesus, we would love the opportunity to introduce you to him. We would love the opportunity to tell you more about what it means to be saved, what it means to be forgiven of your sins, and what it looks like to have genuine faith that produces works. We would love to have that conversation with you. Immediately after the service is over, I'll be down front with some of the other pastors and elders, and we'd love to start those conversations with you. Thank you guys for your time this morning. Let me pray for us, and the band is going to come and lead us in song. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.